Hello there and welcome to another edition of Wrongways Columbia Cast with Brendan Wrongway Corrigan. Now, in a country with such vast economic inequality, those of us who come to Colombia often feel there is little we can do to make a difference. Indeed, there's a belief in some quarters that trying to help is a pointless exercise given the endemic corruption in all walks of life here. However, there are others who have gone selflessly to exceptional lengths to try and improve the lot for Colombia's less well-off. One such person is the late Sam Ling Gibson. Sam, who tragically lost his life in a kayaking accident in Britain last year at the young age of 35, was one of the main driving forces behind Casa Tajer, a community project in the impoverished San Luis area on the outskirts of Bogota. Joining us to tell us about Sam's charitable work and the steps now being taken to ensure his legacy lives on is one of his good friends, a fellow Englishman of Sam's and Bogota resident, Harry Tittenser. Harry, to use a sporting phrase, as I know Sam was quite the active type, there are those who talk a good game, but when it comes to playing it, they're found wanting. Sam, it seems, very much let his actions do the talking. For a sense of that, can you tell us what exactly he did at Casa Tajer and how it all came about? Yes, sure. Hi, Brendan. Um, so basically, um, when Sam got to Bogota, in the, he was one of those. He was one of the members of the first wave of foreigners um, who arrived here in 2010. Obviously, there's plenty of foreign people here before, but when people really started coming to Colombia to live um, from from Europe and the United States and Australia, etc., he he came across and. The very first time I met him was in a party, and um, I mean, he was a guy that was just full of energy. And initially, I didn't think anything special of him. I thought that he was just another fun-loving gringo who was here to have a good time and to enjoy um, what Colombia uh, gives and what Colombia has in terms of traveling and in terms of um, carnivals, etc. But I quickly realized that um, he had a few more levels to him and um, he was quite an impressive individual and quite inspiring in a lot of ways as well. Casa Taller was something important to him throughout his decade that he had in Bogota. It's a project that's up in San Luis, like you said, which is up in the mountains on the outskirts of Bogota. It's a very impoverished area. There's a lot of um, gangs up there and there's a take the wrong path. Casa Taller does with very little support is it offers a safe space for um, young people. And by safe space, I mean a place where they can come, um, they can be part of a community and it also offers things like workshops, um, whether it be carpentry, um, arts, English lessons, cooking lessons or gardening, for example. And it sort of works around the principles of empowering them, giving the kids a sense of community, like I said before, and a sense of teamwork. And an alternative direction to the direction a lot of um, young people have fallen into in that part of Bogota. I take it that he didn't know about Casa Tajer when, when he first came to Colombia, but it seems that he was the kind of guy that obviously was attracted to this. So so what, what, what was he doing initially when he came to Colombia? Um, so initially, um, he settled into Colombia. I mean, I, I think he, I didn't know him when he first got there. He, he, he was in Bogota for a good year before I arrived. 
So I think initially, like most of us, or most of us are still trying to do branded, um, trying to establish yourself in the city, trying to become um, self-sufficient. So, I mean, he, he's a teacher by trade. Okay. Um, he also studied that. So the first job that he got here was as a teacher, but in one of the lesser known institutions, which is quite a um, usual path that a lot of people who arrive in Colombia take. But then, you know, through time, he um, starts working for, for more institutions. At the end of his time, one of the head um, lecturers and a teacher as well. So, you know, he started off right at the, on the bottom rung of teaching and he managed to move his way up to um, the oldest university in Colombia, which is quite a move. And amongst all of that, he wasn't only teaching and working at Castellar, he also was working um, within projects that helped with the inter- reintegration of ex-combatants into Colombian society. So, so as we as we know, um, Colombia is an incredibly polarized country, and part of the peace accord that was negotiated and signed in 2016 was the reintegration of ex-combatants into Colombian society. So, he he would take part in a number of workshops with those people coming back to Bogota. Um, to give them skills that would that would be useful for them coming back into Colombian society. So yeah. that was another major passion of his. I think you ended up living with him. Is that correct? Because am I right in saying that he then uh, studied a master's here, which involved all of that? Because peace and reconciliation seems uh, a big theme throughout his time here. So he was always he always gravitated towards that. And uh, if, if I'm right in saying that uh, he had no problem bringing some of these ex Confidence back, back back to the house uh, that he lived in that you shared with him as well. Is that true? Yeah, well, certainly in recent years, as he as he got deeper and deeper into those projects, it wasn't uncommon for me to arrive back at the house after a day's work to see him having a cup of tea with a couple of ex-combatants, um, which I have to say the first time took me back a little bit, but um, I gradually got used to it. And um, I mean that. I would say 80% of the ex-combatants who were involved in his projects were actually women, um, and some of their stories were quite um, were quite incredible, um, really. And also some of the struggles that they were facing to to find a job and to to take the right path in Bogota uh, came across as being very very complicated. So I mean, he was doing a lot of very very important work with them. Uh, he certainly went a different path to me because I mean we were studying the same masters, but. I um, was a little bit more focused on um, land reform, uh, so I ended up inter- interviewing and talking to the likes of um, the head Fed again, um, Jose Lafari, and the vice, uh, and who is currently the vice president, Marta Lucia Ramirez. So yeah, very we, we were associating with very different types of people in the last yeah. couple of years. That's for sure. Yeah. Different rungs of the ladder, ladder completely. Yeah, very interesting. And so his his masters was in what exactly? The title of the masters was global diplomacy and conflict resolution, and it and it was um, it was actually a masters that he took at the University of London, SOAS. Um, so it was a distance course, um, which involved a couple of modules in London. So he had to travel back during his vacations, but. Okay. So he did a couple of diplomas. At, um, well, he did one at Universidad Nacional, 
Um, and he did another one at Andes. Um, and they were basically focusing on the psychology of ex-combatants coming back into society. So they were very much focused on um, what he studied as a master's, but he wants to study the diplomas in Colombia to, for, for more of a Colombian context, shall we say. Uh, would I be right in saying then that his kind of political ideology or on, on the spectrum, he would have been more more left uh, than right uh, in any case? Because I think that, I think it's the first time I ever met Sam, and, and then after that we met at a few uh, parties, as, as was both of our wants, I guess. Um, but was uh, when Martin McGuinness, of course, the former IRA operative who went on to have a, a significant uh, role in, in Northern Ireland government as the deputy first minister. But he was here giving a talk about that transition from, from conflict to peace in Los Andes University. I think it was in 2014. And I met Sam there. So I, I guess he was probably pretty chuffed to to meet Martin McGuinness. And he was obviously dealing with ex uh, combatants here as well to kind of see what the future could could lie in store for ex-combatants here and, and play a role in Colombian government. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So I don't think it was so much him, you know, agreeing with everything that Martin McGuinness has done in his life, but more, you know, part of, part of a peace agreement and part of negotiations is to talk to the other side, is to talk to the to what was previously your enemy, right? Because if you have peace negotiations, no. Uh-huh. So I think, you know, he found that part of it incredibly interesting. And certainly um, the the peace talks with the IRA were a great example for Colombia and certainly something that um, Colombia took um, a lot from. I mean, from what I heard, Santos was on the phone to Tony Blair every week discuss what was going on in the negotiations and looking for a bit of insight um, in what he experienced when he had his negotiations um, 20 years ago. So, yeah, so I think Sam did gain a lot from that. Um, certainly, he didn't get um, any, any negative feedback from the picture he put up on Facebook. I did. I don't think, my grandma hasn't spoken to me since. <laughs> All right, okay. Is that perhaps because... Both of your families are coming from from different uh, angles on um, this. Is not so much my parents, but certainly going. My my grand's a bit of a royalist, so <laughs> you know anything against. If I if I talk about Francis Drake being a pirate, she gets she asks me if I'm on the right side. So um, yeah, she doesn't forget the past. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, just just in terms of like your own relationship uh, with uh, with Sam, um, I know once you, you got to know him better, that you travelled quite a lot and, and again to some of these camps, um, reintegration camps for, for ex-guerrillas and things like that as well. So you, you must have some nice memories of the of the time that you spent with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was quite, I was quite, um, I was taken by surprise a number of times. I mean, it would start off with the idea to go on a trip to Florencia in Caquita. And, you know, on the second day, all of, a, all of a sudden, Sam would mention that he had organized something, which on one occasion did involve going to a demobilization camp. Um, so, I mean, it was quite an experience. Um, I mean, what we saw the majority of the time was that uh, the government wasn't fulfilling what it had promised. I mean, you had the basic foundations of a camp there, but the other things that were promised the halfway houses, the programs that they were supposedly going to go into didn't exist. So, 
I mean, it was the start of the pro- it was the start of the implementation, but it hadn't been completed, and that probably had a lot to do with mm-hmm. the change of government just two years into the peace accord being signed. But yeah, just a lot of people with hope when we went there. Um, a lot of people hoping to return to society, but um, obviously because of what's happened since then, a lot of people have gone back in England and a number have actually rearmed. Um, it, uh, I think the wait became too long in the end. And yeah. was, they couldn't I, sit out any longer. Of course, I mean, it, it's it's a process. And, and as we know from the Northern Ireland example as well, it can take a lot of time and there can be a lot of false dawns. But I, I guess at least if the process is moving in some direction, or moving at least hopefully forward, that uh, we can get through these obstacles. But without, I suppose, getting too maybe political on that side of it, just coming back to um, <laughs> Casa Tajer, the thing with uh, with Sam is that, like he seemed to live and breathe this really that it wasn't a case that he'd go there on his Saturday or whatever, but it was almost all all consuming for him. Am I correct in saying that? Oh, absolutely. So I mean, whenever he would um, travel home to England, um, which he would always do once a year, he'd spend a lot of a t- lot of his time in England trying to fundraise for um, Castellier. Um, to spread awareness when he had holidays or when he had time available in in Bogota he would also try and plan trips away with the kids at the foundation so they would get taken to they'll get taken on one such trip particularly excited about they went to the the Amazon on another trip they went to Akira and there would always there would always be some there'd be lots of practical activities involved in the trip so on one such trip they went to when they went to Akira. It involved um, helping a indigenous um, community um, sort of build mud huts, and then post that there'll be lots of games, there'll be lots of activities. Um, I remember on one particular trip when I went with him, it involved drinking a non-alco- non-alcoholic chicha, I believe, um, okay. at the end of the at the end of the day's con- uh, construction, and. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it didn't end too well for me. Everybody else seemed to be fine, but um, my next memory was waking up in uh, my next destination, which was the following day. So I was going to leave them as a group in San Hill um, on a park bench, feeling incredibly ill after not making it to, <laughs> after not making it to my to my hostel that particular morning because um, I'd been hit quite hard with whatever I drank that night. I'm not sure if they made teacher in that particular community the old way out of saliva but it's quite possible i think and my it didn't, it didn't agree with you anyway <laughs> no <laughs> but my, my, my stomach's a little more fragile than theirs obviously <laughs> so yeah didn't quite agree <laughs> me. And, and then yeah you, you you say that he he took it with him everywhere i mean so the the few weekends where he didn't make it up there and he didn't help um at the foundation with his workshops and whatever he was doing um the kids would always know where he was going. So on one such occasion, he went to the uh, Feria de Cometas, the kite festival in Via de Leyva. Mm-hmm. And at this kite festival, there's a there's a big competition where all the kite flyers from Colombia come once a year. It's in, in, in the first couple of weeks of August, um, and the kids very, very nicely and in a very self, self-sufficient and sustainable way built some a kite um well what they thought was a kite it was it was basically um built from a couple of branches and a bit of tarp so 
So very excited to give this to Sam, and he promised the kids that he would fly it in the main plaza with all the other um, kite champions. So, <laughs> so he spent much of the first day there just trying to fly the kite um, at some of the higher points of the town, trying to catch a bit of wind, but just wouldn't fly. So he decided to go and see an expert <laughs> that evening. And um, the look on the expert's face, this guy had finished first in the tournament two of the previous three years, was just astonishment that this guy, this foreign guy, would could believe that this flight, this kite ever was going to fly in the air. <laughs> it was just in complete disagreement. So, I mean, Sam at that point um, gave up and he accepted that he wasn't going to be able to fulfill the wish of the kids at Casas. Yeah. Anyway, the next day when they were having the official um, competition, about one hour in, we were on the plaza and on the tannoy, echoing, reverberating across the plaza we hear Sam Gibson <laughs> and <laughs> unbeknown to Sam he had been entered by one of his cheeky friends <laughs> into the competition <laughs> and um, yeah the look on his face I mean this is a guy who normally grabbed life by the horns but on, this, <laughs> on this particular occasion he disappeared into thin air for the next three hours and we didn't see him again <laughs> so unfortunately um the, the town never got to see um, such a fantastic contraption. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it, I, this, this this piece of lead almost yeah. <laughs> as aerodynamic as a piece of lead. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> basically flying a couple of branches. But yeah, you know, he really did take Casatayad um, with him everywhere. It was really important to him. I mean, it, it is a really important project. Um, the kids who go there are very vulnerable, like I said before. Um, a lot of them are from very difficult backgrounds. There might be a bit of violence in their family. Um, there might be, you know, in a couple of cases, the parents aren't there. Um, so it really does offer, you know, another space where not only they can go and do these practical skills, they can be part of the community, but also, you know, they can they get mentors. And Sam certainly was a mentor for a lot of these children. And it meant a hell of a hell of a lot to him, and they knew that as well. Um, so it really was a big loss for them when um, he wasn't here anymore. Um, yeah. You know, um, he's, he's, he was a big hole because not only did he go to the foundation, he also took other foreigners with him. So he brought me along, for example. He brought countless friends along there. In fact, one of the first things that he would he would say to any new friend is, "Come with me to." Yeah, in fact, it was a litmus test for a lot of for for not a lot. I won't say a lot, so I'll make him sound like a bit of a a bit of a player. <laughs> for a couple of girlfriends, it was a litmus test at the start of the relationship. Can you can you cope with a day up at the foundation um, from seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday to twelve o'clock? How can, how do you cope in these circumstances? And that would be the litmus test to see if he would go forward with the girl <laughs> into the future. Most of the time. <laughs> the kids are very lovable, so. <laughs> yeah, and I'm guessing, yeah, there was a huge sense of loss then uh, in Casa Tajir with Sam's passing because were there kids there basically from the, the time he started there? So he had them all this time that he basically probably became like a, a big brother to, to some of these kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, so much so that, I mean, some of the kids that he started with back in 2009 are adults now. 
and they're actually working as mentors at the foundation. So it's it's a very um, it's a very transitional project where you have these kids who start off benefiting from the foundation itself, and they sort of continue working there not all the time, but when they can into adult life because they know the benefits that it gave them when they were younger, and that really is good um, for the local community. You know, it's not a question of okay, I'm going to go here. Well, I'm young and people really do stay connected to the project because it is a community um, also when they're an adult, you know. So and then there's a couple of people who are adults now. And they have their own children and their children also go to Casa Taller. So um, it really is a community there. I, I mentioned briefly before, there's a number of obstacles. San Luis is in a very impoverished part of Bogota. And because of that, it's, these young people are very vulnerable because of gangs um, and bandas criminales that operate in that area. So, I mean, the, the, the foundation operates in a very fragile and unstable environment at times. They've received a number of, a number of threats in the past as well, whether they've been direct towards somebody who's working at the foundation or to one of the volunteers or to the family of the kids. So it really is impressive that they managed to um, operate in such a, in such a capacity to, and, and they've been so important to so many young people for so many years, despite operating in such an environment. Yeah, and, and I know we're going to get on to um, the foundation or the trust that's been uh, set up by the family and linked into Casa Tiger and where people can support. But um, one thing is, I, I guess maybe if Sam is looking down, uh, he, he'll agree. Like in terms of uh, his charitable work, he, he probably he's probably did more charitable work on his little finger that, than I've done in my whole life. But uh, if there was maybe one fault, if I can use that word, that he wasn't very good at uh, at publicizing his work compared maybe to some other people, they they um they have a lot of show but very little substance. It was the opposite with with Sam. He had a lot of substance but very little show. And I know uh, his Instagram, for example, if he was going to use that as a promotional tool, that never really got off the ground. Just one. <laughs> One photo. So he wasn't uh, too too well up on the old social media, it seems. No, not at all. And um, I mean, if yeah, if there's one criticism that you could potentially have is that because it, well, you know, I mean, in his mind, he didn't want to he didn't want to look for recognition for what he was doing. He believed that charity was something that you do and you just do it. But having said that, you know, had he sought more recognition, maybe more awareness would have arrived at the foundation. Maybe more funding. You never know. But it's just how he was built and how he operated. And perhaps also because he put so much energy into the projects that he was doing, whether that be teaching, whether that be work, working with the reintegration of guerrillas, or whether that was working in Castellar, or whether that was socializing and partying at the weekends. He certainly did that as well. I don't think he really had time <laughs> for Instagram. I mean, we all know the amount of procrastination that goes into maintaining a healthy um, social media presence so uh, exactly so I think a lot of that was just avoiding it and and as far as Instagram is concerned the only reason he even has an account was because he did a project with his students at Rosario and part of that project was the students having outreach programs through social media so I think he set up the the account just as an example for the students um, and, and obviously it was just a picture of him in um, and Dennis Morcus, the former progressive mayor of 
Bogota, obviously. It wouldn't be of him in Penelope or anything like that. <laughs> it's just a picture of those two, and maybe that was maybe that was quite apt in the end. <laughs> those two had a, a couple of things in common, <laughs> like strange strategies to try and create um, change in society. Maybe they both had that in common. Yeah, and, and like talking about some of his other hobbies as well. Of course, he did leave some physical marks uh, on the city. I think, unfortunately, now I think they're gone. But he was into graffiti too. That was yeah. So I mean, he he's still a partner in crime and that. So if anyone's ever been on the old um, Bogota graffiti tour, the guy who runs that is is a friend of ours. Who's here? He's not here anymore, but he was previously here um, for a, quite a few years. Um, so he he ran that, but he was also a graffiti artist. And I think Sam saw what he was doing and had a bit of an artistic turn himself. So he he got crisp is his artistic tag, um, the tour owner. He got he got crisp to show him how to stencil and, and obviously Sam was very uh, politically influenced so he did a number of uh, murals around the city uh, <laughs> that sort of illustrated uh, his political beliefs one was um, I, I think there were two that stood out there was one on the 53 and Septima which was Somos Nemesla which is a picture of Santos and a indigenous girl. And there was another one which was riot police with kisses all over. So Sam would have been very well suited to the public universities in Bogota had he had he studied in Bogota. <laughs> I think that was his place. Uh, that that would have naturally been his place originally. I'm sure he probably would have got some energy uh, out of the happenings here last November when we had the, uh, the the massive protests and things like that. That maybe it was a a move in in some sort of a right direction. Yeah. He was very much a part. He was a, he was very much a part of those mixes. There was a peace rally. Off there was a protest against corruption. Um, I wouldn't see him in the house that night. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'd see him coming back in his rickety bike um, <laughs> later on in the in the night. And, and I know uh, apparently uh, this was it last year or this year was going to be his last year here. But a lot of people were saying that was impossible. That he was kind of already he was. He was here for the long, the long. Yeah, haul. I mean, he'd really invested so much time in what he was doing, especially in recent years. I mean, he became, he lost a lot. I mean, he, he said to me that he was, he became less encouraged with the current government. But I think in the end, he just used that to inspire himself even more, um, because he realised that it was even more necessary that he stayed here for for more time. So I mean, yeah, he always came out with the old um, two years, I'll be gone. I've got another country. I've got another country in me, <laughs> um, but you know, he never, he never uh, said firmly that I'm going to go to this place in two years. So um, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if, if he never left. Really, as long as he could visit um, yeah. the UK once a year to see his family and to see his friends there, I think he was always going to be content here. Um, to be honest. Yeah, and of course, uh, the kind of nice uh, move on, on to his family because I, I know his, his mother and, and brother came here last November and, and that was kind of the push then to get the Sam Ling Gibson Trust set up and there's a website that people can visit. So tell us a, a little bit about that and, and this is, I guess, where we're talking about the legacy now and the positive legacy that we can build on. Yeah, so, I mean, strangely, because... Sam met the whole of my family. He's been to my went to my sister's wedding. He um, he's met my brother. Um, I never met his mum face to face, despite having lived with Sam for three years. 
um, until she actually came out here once um, he had passed away. Um, so she's actually the, she's Sam's twin, basically. They're the same person. She's also worked in these types of projects her whole life. And for her, I think, for her process of getting, not getting over, but for her process of grief, um, it was very important that Sam had a legacy here in, in Colombia that was long term. So she set up her trust in the UK um, called the Sandling Gibson um, Trust. And the idea of that is to, it has three pillars, basically. One is fundraising, which is the principal uh, pillar, obviously. One is um, volunteering, so to spread the network of volunteers that may come to Colombia or come from within Colombia to help the project in the future with, with appropriate skills that can help uh, the young people within the foundation. And the other one was um, succession. Because at the moment, there are two people running um, Castaller, um, Nicolasa and her husband, um, Mateo. Um, and they've been here for the whole time. But I think I think their plan for a young family is to eventually leave Colombia. Um, so it was very important for Sam's mum and her family to make sure that there is a succession set up so that there is something in place to ensure that this foundation continues to provide the resources, to provide the support, to provide the love that it has done to that community going forward. So that's in place. And as a result of that, that um, they came across here to get to know the project. Um, Sam's mum's worked in a bunch of NGOs in the past to analyze what it needed where it needed funding, etc. So they, they, they now have this plan in place, obviously still with Nicolasa, not taking the reins from Nicolasa or Mateo at all. They still have the reins because they know they're the people who have worked there for over a decade and they know exactly what it needs. Um, but just to give them a bit more support because the foundation itself isn't an official charity um, because they don't see any advantage, they don't see any advantage in becoming an official charity um, all that would mean would be it would be very costly to gain that um, standardization, and it would also mean lots more interference from the states, which up until now has provided no support to this local community, so they don't see any reason to involve the state going forward. Um, that seems to be their reasoning. So one of the first projects, well, sorry, one of the first um, fundraising events that was put in place was the run between Black Mill, where Sam grew up, and Bogota, which is about just over 5,000 miles, um, 7,000 kilometers. Um, and the idea was to run, cycle, and ju- and walk between Black Mill and Bogota. And for every mile that people did that, they would get uh, one pound in fundraising from whatever um, support they were getting. And in the end, I mean, it, Sam was still... Um, hold such good faith with the circles that he that he had when he was with us. Um, they got so many volunteers to do this that they decided to double um, the estimation of what they were going to raise. So they did it. And in fact, at the end of the fundraising, they um, raised about three times that. So it, it really does right. show um, the impression that he left on a number of people. And you know, even though he's not here anymore, He's getting us to do something, giving, he's getting us to give something back to the community whilst improving our health as well, <laughs> which I think during quarantine has been quite necessary for a, for a number of people. Well, yeah, exactly. Piling on the pounds uh, during this lockdown, indeed. 
so that was a case that yeah so so people had to, to run every every mile was it or how exactly did that work again like so, so to cover the distance that's what you're saying yeah so to cover the distance but because of so many people volunteering in the in the end they decided to do the distance between black mill which is near gateshead in newcastle and bogota okay. um they would do it there and back again which is over ten thousand miles but in fact, I mean, so many people just started um, donating money because obviously everybody uh, was doing what Sam <laughs> didn't do quite often, which was using their social media to spread. The web. <laughs> um, lots of people um, jumped on board, um, you know, and even myself, um, when I did it, um, people jumping out of the woodwork who had very brief relationships with Sam. They might have met him a few times. But he, he, he left a lasting impression on them. So, I mean, to anybody who's listening this pod, listening to this podcast, and I mean, if you don't think that I've explained what he did well enough, just go to the go to the site and there's lots of information. And um, he really was an inspirational character. Yeah, just to repeat, went out a little bit the connection, but uh, Sam Ling Gibson Trust. Yeah. org. Yeah, so you can find all the information there. That um event which is every july which is in the anniversary of his uh, of his passing am i right in saying that that's going to be an annual event yeah yeah i think it is i mean we might get a bit more creative than what we do with that it, this year it was largely his friends i think he has a very close knit network still at, back home so they largely organized that this year and we got wind of it and we decided that you know his friends from bogota would also participate um, so I, I guess we'll try and think of um, other ways that we can raise money um, next year and maybe think of a different way that we can do that. But, yeah, I, I think that's the plan. Every July on the anniversary, we will do something during that month um, to raise money for the foundation. Because, as I said before, at the moment, they're, the only um, donations that they get are private donations from individuals or from local business owners. But obviously – with what's going on at the moment because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Donations are slim. Um, they obviously get no support from the state. So, you know, the more people who can support this foundation, whether it's through money or whether it's through being able to volunteer, I mean, you don't even have to have a practical skill. It's just uh, being there and being available to be a mentor to, you know, a couple of these kids once once in a while it doesn't have to be every weekend but it really does make a difference just to be there and, and you see that when you visit like the kids eyes light up when they meet new people they just want to talk to you i mean you, to, to them all that they know is their local community up in san luis so to meet somebody from another part of colombia or from another part of bogota or a foreigner is is a really important experience for them and they're just full of questions really and intrigue yeah at the moment i, I take it it's not the workshops aren't taking place with the with the lockdown measures. Yeah, yeah. So you still have, like I said, you still have the volunteers who are within oh. the community. Um, so the people, a lot of the volunteers are people who were previously part of Castellier, but they are also still contributing to the project. They still live in the area. Um, but yeah, just to continue on what I said before, you know, whatever you can give, whether that's time, whether that's money or resources as well. So to give clothes, to give gardening equipment, to give cooking equipment, anything that could really help with the workshops that they're giving up there, I mean, is a real help. Um, they really do. Okay. And I, I, one of the, one of the um, activities that they do, as well as recycling, 
they have a they have a really big philosophy towards self sufficiency and sustainability. So they they try and teach the kids how to upcycle um, things that they receive, or whether it's an old piece of clothing or whether it's an old piece of furniture. So anything that you have really is of use to them. Uh, and I think that's probably a fitting uh, place to finish because uh, Sam himself, I believe, uh, a man after my own heart in some ways, uh, he wasn't uh, too much into fast fashion, <laughs> certainly not in his early years anyway. So uh, a pair of runners or trainers with holes in them or whatever, he'd, he'd uh, keep on using them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he certainly, as you know, uh, Colombia is quite a formal environment when you work in in its major institutions. So once he did get the jobs the job at Rosario and Universidad Ayan as well as shirt and tie. But yeah, um, he was his home clothes, his casual clothes, still were the clothes that he had in 2010. He had no intention of um, getting rid of any of those just yet. And the sewing shops just around the corner were, all, were always of great use to him to make sure that he could get um, the full use out, out of his wardrobe. <laughs> exactly. If it's, if it's not broken, uh, don't uh, don't fix it. I, I guess is the is the motto to take from practice that. Practice what you preach. <laughs> oh, pra- yeah, practice what you preach. We've been battling a, a dodgy enough line. Maybe that's Sam playing games on us. Yeah. He's saying, "God, I don't want this publicity." <laughs> um, but, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna obviously include the the link to uh, the trust on the text accompanying this podcast so people can click that there'll be a hyperlink and they can go directly and check out exactly uh, what we've been talking about it's only really been a, a glance over over a man who's over a decade involved in Bogota and in this country so he's going to leave a, a long legacy and hopefully that trust uh, will get all the support it deserves um, Harry appreciate you taking the time and as I said we've been battling a, a dodgy enough line uh, the internet never the best here in Bogota when you when you want it to be, but thanks a million uh, for taking the time. If you do want to get in contact with me, of course you can uh, via the Twitter handle at Way Corrigan or via my Facebook blog, which is at Wrong Way Corrigan Blog. But until the next time, ciao ciao.